The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Your problem is not technology. The problem is you. Then help us, Jay. I cannot change your nature. This planet is dying. The human race is killing it. So you've come here to help us? No. You said you came to save us. I said I came to save the Earth. You came to save the Earth? From us. You came to save the Earth. From us. If the Earth dies, you die. If you die... The Earth survives. We can change. We could still turn things around. We've watched, we've waited and hoped that you would change. Please. It's reached the tipping point. We have to act. Please. We'll undo the damage you've done and give the Earth a chance to begin again. Don't do that. Please. We could change. We can change. The decision is made. The process has begun. Oh, God. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Hope you dug that clip from the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, with Keanu Reeves playing Klaatu. Are we humans no more than consuming viruses, as Agent Smith states in The Matrix? Are we really a scourge upon Gaia and she just needs to scrape us off her skin? Or do we just need to reach into our lizard brains and become like the beasts and bask in the circle of life with Simba and Mufasa? Throw feces at imaginary elves and eat fleas from our hair? Look, Simba. As always, both sides are wrong. The solution, Klaatu, is a Gnostic and Hermetic thinking. You see, we humans are indeed aliens to this cosmos, strangers in a strange land. But that doesn't make us invaders. We have a role, and it's a special one. We are different than the gods and the animals. We are that place where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. We are in between heaven and earth, so we can mediate and harmonize heaven and earth. That is our gift. In fact, that's our sacred responsibility. To be the caretakers of the cosmos, as Gary Lockman calls those who embrace Hermes and Sophia. Who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there, really? If you, you want to understand the universe. Embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. Speaking of Hermes, in the Nag Hammadi library, he tells Asclepius, And it happened this way because of the will of God, that men be better than the gods, since, indeed, the gods are immortal, but men alone are both immortal and mortal. Therefore, man has become akin to the gods, and they know the affairs of each other with certainty. 
the gods know the things of men, and men know the things of the gods. And I am speaking about men, Asclepius, who have attained learning and gnosis. But about those who are more vain than these, it is not fitting that we say anything base, since we are divine and are introducing holy matters. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So don't listen to the woke or right reactionaries. One side saying we are the carbon that needs to be eliminated, and the other who thinks that the planet is our Jehovah-given toilet. We are the caretakers of the cosmos, we of the broken places and veterans of a thousand psychic wars. We mediate heaven and earth. If we can't protect the earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. Both the woke and right reactionaries are just trying to find a reality that suits their corrupted souls, all under the programming of Yaldibaldi and his rapey angels. Sure, the world is a terrible place, but the task is to redeem it by unleashing its light instead of taking advantage of a situation, akin to becoming prison guards in a penitentiary. Plato! As Jason Horsley wrote, Reality, like God, has many counterfeits but no substitutes. No one saves their soul while trying to secure a place in hell, this world. As Jason further writes, Making the world a better, more comfortable and luxurious place is the nihilist answer to the death of God. This is perfection. No, as Hermes and Sophia would say, it's about renewing the fallen cosmos, creating better than the creator gods, and honoring the miracle that is every living thing. What we do in life echoes in eternity. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Welcome to Aeon Gnostic Radio, here at the Virtual Alexandria. My name is Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis, and another caretaker of the cosmos like you, writing my own gospel and living my own myth. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. Where hope dies, imagination must live. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Please allow me to reward thee with a doubleheader, twice that gnosis, as we prepare to face another bloody year. Most diviners and those with common sense claim that 2024 is going to be a hard year for the collective consciousness. So yes, Captain, my Captain, a doubleheader, full for everyone as a gift. I'm going to grant you the greatest wish. I'm going to show you a world without sin. First, we have the pleasure of hosting Mawiya Kai El Jama Pomani to discuss her book, Conjuring the Calabash, Empowering Women with Hoodoo Spells and Magic. He'll love her mysticism. The topic may seem outside the wheelhouse of Aeon Bite, but as you will see, 
hoodoo and African animism are key to my Elvis book, and thus the renewal of the American dream, which really is a central theme of my work. Then we'll pivot to David Lee and his new book, Primordial Chaos. David will provide a summary of the evolution of chaos magic and how it's going in the digital age and this Philip K. Dick world. And also a lot of cool revelations on how you can live a magical life. Klaatu! Voodoo magic and chaos magic, two emerging spiritual tech in the last few generations that can be part of your toolbox to keep being, yes, a caretaker of the cosmos. Freedom. To most, it is an idea. An abstract thought that pertains to control. That's not freedom. That's independence. Freedom is riding wild over untamed land with no notion any moment exists beyond the one you are living. Again, full for everyone. So if you find value, please support. 2023 was amazing for traffic, but terrible for support. And I can't do it without you. No way! As we get to the end of my trivel, let me quote from the Corpus Hermeticum 8, which highlights the theme of the show and our place in this terra damnata. It goes, Oh Father, I have been steadfast through God. I now see not with the eyes, but by the operation of spiritual energy in the powers. I am in heaven, in earth, in water, in the air. I am in living creatures and plants. I am in the womb, before the womb, after the womb. I am present everywhere. And as Philip K. Dick wrote, The true measure of a man is not his intelligence or how high he rises in this freak establishment. No, the true measure of a man is this, how quickly can he respond to the needs of others and how much of himself he can give. No single thing abides and all things are fucked up. A man is an angel that has gone deranged. I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. Sorry, woke and right reactionaries. Your time is over. The world has suffered enough, and enough innocent beings have been abused. We of the broken places know the score and understand the solutions. We embrace this saying of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas that sets it all right. Here it is. If your leaders say to you, Look, the Father's kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, It is in the sea, then fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's kingdom is within you and it is outside you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you live in poverty, and you 
are the poverty. Look, a sentient meat, however illusory our identities are, we craft those identities by making value judgments. Everybody judges all the time. Now, you got a problem with that, you're living wrong. What's scented meat? Led us to our fantastic doubleheader. Latu, Mirada, <laughs> Okay then. That's it. I didn't have the heart to tell her there is no heaven to go to. Because we're in it already. We're in hell too. They coexist right beside each other. And God is the land. Looking back, there were two journeys. One was filled with danger and death and despair. The other, adventure and wonder. I was on the latter, and I loved it. I didn't know enough to know they would collide. I didn't know enough to know how cruel and uncaring this world can be. The world doesn't care if you die. They won't listen to your screams. If you bleed on the ground, the ground will drink it. It doesn't care that you're cut. I told myself, when I meet God, it will be the first thing I ask him. Why make a world of such wonder and fill it with monsters? Why make flowers and then snakes to hide beneath them? What purpose does the tornado serve? Then it hit me. He didn't make it for us. This is the A.M. Byte interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure of having Mawiya Kai El Jama Bomani. Mawiya, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Computer's doing fine, too. Uh, you know, with our subject tonight, I always think of that thing. See the man. What man? Man with the power. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mawia, we are here to discuss a book that I really enjoyed, Conjuring the Calabash and uh, Empowering Women with Hoodoo Spells and Magic. So before we get into that, perhaps tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your journey into becoming a superhero. Um, well, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, from a very, very young age, um, I could see spirits. And so with that, um, my mom, you know, being in New Orleans, uh, the culture itself, there is a lot of that overlap of, um, you know, you go to church, but you also go see a hoodoo doctor. You go see a Vodun priestess. So, you know, there it's not, it's not an abnormal thing to happen there. So um, one of the things that she did say, she said, you know, you can't tell the nuns that, you know, because I was in Catholic school, right? She's like, you can't, you can't, you just can't say that to them, um, you know, but we'll handle that at home. We'll talk about, you know, how to uh, maneuver that, you know, as, at a young age, you know, you're just thinking what, you know, what do they want with me? You know, that kind of thing. And um, so from then on, it was just, uh, I guess that was my beginning of my learning and, and meeting other people and having other teachers come into my life. To really sort of get me um, 
honed in on how to, you know, approach the magic and then still live a normal life. Um, and so I've just been writing, writing, writing plays, you know, and all of those things have a lot to do with folklore and even my poetry. And then I just, you know, during the pandemic, you know, everybody's at home. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to write this book, you know, because I'm dealing with a lot of people. Um, and so I think that, you know, and, and doing a lot of divination work, the, they would be helped. A lot more people would be helped if I can get this book out, you know. So that was pretty much, you know, the journey. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It, uh, I enjoyed the book and God, I really love New Orleans. God, I love New Orleans. Uh, Non-summer <laughs> New Orleans. Let me put that caveat right there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On January or February, I really love New Orleans. It's, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> there. It's like nothing else in the world. Oh, no, like nowhere else, right? No, no, no. And yeah, I want to unpack more, but God, uh, just in November, I did this, uh, I did the Route 66. I drove from Illinois to Memphis. And mm -hmm. then we went down to Clarksdale to uh, see Robert Johnson in the crossroads. So okay, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to talk about more. But before we do that, uh, um, for the audience that might not know, could you explain what is hoodoo? Yeah, you know, a lot of people, it all depends on where you live. They have, they would have a lot of different answers for that. But I know, you know, growing up in New Orleans, one of the things that we, um, we were always well-versed in is, you know, a lot of the African traffic that came in, right, from the enslavement. And you, there were different people from different areas. And those people blending their ideas, their spirituality, you know, the things that they could bring with them as far as their knowledge and trying to um, sort of mi mix that in with what they already had there, you know, because some of the herbs and the roots, those things weren't there with them. And so that mixed with Native American ideas, European ideas, you know, a form of magic that worked also as, um, you know, liberation magic, I like to say, healing. Um, they, they didn't have doctors for them, you know, a lot of times. So you had to depend on a midwife or a root worker or a conjurer to do those things um, relationship-wise, all those things try to, you know, help you cope with the trauma of enslavement, but the trauma of also maybe of your family being torn apart. So, you know, it is a blending of all of those sensibilities, African at its very core, but also Native American and European presence in that because, you know, the travels and the being in this new place, this new environment, you have to sort of pull what you can with already there in that, in that area. So it is just that blending of that. But I always like to tell people it is at its very core liberation magic, because that's that's the main reason why it sprouted, you know, this urge to be free. And if not a physical freedom, you know, at least for a small part of time, you know, this mental liberation. Oh, love it. Love it. And so you would say this, could we say this spirituality is animistic, perhaps? Would that be a category? It deals more yes. with spirits and nature and all that yes yes you, you definitely could mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. great great yeah and i love that liberation theory and again uh, a backstory of why i did the route 66 is um i'm writing a book on a uh, spiritual biography on elvis mm. and uh, obviously yeah people are you know people are still debating was elvis appropriating what he was doing but obviously it's true that he grew up in extreme poverty in mm -hmm. Back in the 40s, it didn't matter what you were, black, white, uh, Lithuanian Jewish communities, in Mississippi, everybody was right, dirty. right, 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 Every, right, especially in Mississippi, it was it was bad. But mm -hmm. 
he was ex- and of course he was extremely uh influenced by uh black gospel the blues again uh all that and he even said he always said look uh uh the black people really understand about uh being homeless about uh being cast in this world about yearning for a home beyond home uh and they really understand and he loved tapping into this energy because it was an energy like you said of freedom of being right, able to right. to escape and he thought it belonged to white people black you know it belonged mm-hmm, to the world. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that that was part of the magic of Elvis that he under and of course he went to uh he went to black churches. Uh yeah, it was yeah, yeah. because when he would go to church, he had to sit at the back with the white people while the black people got, you know, the first 20 oh, rows. Yeah. Because but he did, mm-hmm. you know, he was he dated black women. Cops almost killed him once for mm-hmm, daring. Mm-hmm. So I I want people to know especially as I drove through Mississippi and I was in Memphis and in Clarks, I was like, it's like, I want to tell people this energy that Elvis and Robert Johnson and so many people tapped down to this might heal our country. And I'm not exaggerating and I'm not deluded. No, no. I yeah. feel we need to tap into this ancient force of longing and these mm-hmm. ancient gods and so forth. Would you agree with that? I do. I would definitely agree with that. And it reminds me of, um, you know, studying back in the earlier parts of New Orleans when, um, you know, you had this it's blending of all these different people and you had Italian communities come in there and they were working together with these African-Americans, you know, doing these jobs in the um, in the service industry. And so they're blending together um, this whole idea of St. Joseph's Day. Right. And, um, you know, uh, even now today, you know, there still is that blending of that St. Joseph's Day using of the olive oil using of the lucky bean, you know, the fava bean. Um, and so all of those those blendings, those mixtures of things. So yeah, I do believe that. I think that if we can find this um, common ground, you know, then we can merge those magical uh, aspects together, right? And it makes it more powerful and more powerful force to help heal the, the universe, help heal all of our troubles. Yes, I do. Well said, because again, in the 50s, when we came back from World War II and United States was in this sort of new reality of nuclear warfare and communism and materialism. It was almost like black music was what kept teenagers, what's the word, sane. People right. like Elvis and BB King and others, mm-hmm, they brought, mm-hmm. and it really, it was a, it was like a form of therapy for the entire nation. The, there right, were those right. who were the old guard, but this sort of music and art and culture was really helpful for America to rise or survive mm-hmm. this brave mm-hmm. new world, you know, <laughs> which we're not right, doing well right. today. <laughs> no, we're not. I think I always think that a lot of times when, you know, we we are allowed to, you know, come together, you know, the idea is to tear us apart again, right? So, you know, when we when we do merge like with the music, you know, and and with the understanding that you know, there are overlaps in our in the things that we do. And if we use those things, you know, um, to nurture each other, then we won't have all of this division. But I think that, you know, for a lot of people, the division is is what they want. You know what I'm saying? And so we just have to find a way to bring it back together, bring it back to force. 
Oh, yeah, I agree with you. And I guess some people would be asking, and you do address this in your book, Conjuring Calabash, is uh, is hoodoo an open practice? Who can join and who can't? That's an internet argument, if you will. Right, right, right. I always, always talk about we all have, you know, folk magic beginnings. We all have our folk magic you know, culturally. Now, you know, when you, um, and, and I say like, individual like a, like working with a deity like Lama Dama, right? If you're going to work with the energy, the spirit of Lama Dama, who, you know, when you see her statue, she's this woman with this apron and she has a broom and a basket on her head and she's a very dark skinned um, individual. Well, her energy is synonymous with um, an enslaved woman who would work in the plantation home, right? She's a woman who's long past her years of, um, you know, childbearing. You know, it was not a good experience for her, you know, because she was a breeder, so to speak. And so she works inside this home and she tra has information travel back and forth to the Maroons, the, in the enslaved people who were able to get away and who live in the mountain areas or in the wooded areas. So an individual, a, a spiritual energy like Lama Dama would not be someone that everybody would, would gravitate towards working with because her... Um, her energy is one that is about movement of the people who have been subjugated. And so I would say, would you work with her if you're not if you're not an African-American person? Oh, you probably would not. Now, you, what you could do, I always tell people, you could write a letter. You could write something and sit it at a, at, and, you know, to her and burn it in a cauldron saying, you know, um, you know, I am sorry for the, you know, whatever, however you want to say it, you know, your petition, your plea about what happened during the time of enslavement, that could be something that you could do the work with in terms of working with her or letting her know how you feel. But as far as doing ritual work for her, no, I would not. On the on the flip side, Mother Catherine Seals worked with Black people and white people alike, you know, in New Orleans. And so she, her whole idea was the fact that she went to a faith healer who said that he wasn't going to work with because she was Black. And so she said, when I have my 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 church, I'm going to work with everybody. So that would be someone that anybody could work with. So I would always tell people, you know, use common sense. You know, if you feel that that is not working in your favor or that you, you really feel like that's not something that you want to really delve into, it doesn't speak to you, you know, then don't do it. But there are lots of overlaps that do speak to all of us. And so we could definitely do those things. So it's always to me a, a, a very much a common sense thing. And, um, you know, we we can go into it and really read up on it and see, well, OK, I can probably do this, but maybe that won't be something that would be uh, beneficial to me. But I could approach it a different way. Like I said, with the writing of the letter and burning it in a cauldron, which is still being very respectful. You know, it is not um, appropriating, but it is being appreciative and also a comrade for the people who have suffered. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And listen to yourself. But you also do give the the warning in your book, like, you know, if you tell somebody not to do it, there's a right. They're going right. to try what they call the Streisand effect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all want. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And uh, what would you say or could you briefly maybe describe uh what the Yoruba is, the pantheon and the spirits that uh, encompass this tradition? Um, well, Nigeria, it comes from Nigeria, um, but in other regions of West Africa, there's that overlap again. Um, but the Yoruba uh, practice itself is um, just dealing with the forces of nature. So all of the forces of nature have their own name. They have their own place. 
um, being a daughter of Oya, she deals, she deals with transformation. Um, we think about transformation and death, but all, not just the physical death, but, uh, you know, moving from one stage of life to the next, that kind of death. Also, um, you know, she is in charge of the winds, right? So whenever we have tornadic activity near my home, we always petition Oya, you know, for, to, for protection. So, you know, they're, they're, they're there to help assist us in our creativity. We go to Oshun, you know, so, you know, they're these energies, right? that we um, house inside of these bodies that deify them and we work with them, have altars for them. And we experience, you know, all of the wonderful magic that comes from them being initiated to those systems. The reason that in writing this book is because I want more people to really start to hone in on um, indigenous practice that did not require initiation. You know, the Yoruba system, there is initiations for that. There are lots of study for that, you know, and then there are certain areas that you 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 don't move in until you're ready for that. But with Hoodoo, it is more open in that, you know, you don't have to have those initiations. You know, it's regional, how you learn things, you know, what you learn to do with things. You can trade off information with other individuals and it is more accessible to everyone. And so that, to me, well, I, I debated for a little while if I wanted to write a book about Oya, or if I wanted to do the, the book about hoodoo and I felt like the hoodoo book would reach more people and it would not have people um, feel alienated, you know, because they were not initiates or did not know that the, now they have the terminology and the, the understanding of those Yoruba principles. No, that definitely makes sense. And uh, what about, but they're also uh, like uh, the goddess Oshun and I've done a show on her before she seems to be crossing more boundaries or what do you think because she is a, a wisdom goddess and other people can cognate her to you know athena or ishtar or sophia yeah, yeah. of the gnostic she is right 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 that could, that's that's cross boundaries to other races if you would yes yes um definitely they all do um and yes yeah, she does cross boundaries a lot of and a lot of men of all races you know they navigate towards um ogun a lot of times you know because of that worker energy you know that anvil that man who you know who's going to be out in the field and he's going to get it done you know so yeah a lot of them crossed um and so and that's fine i think that the knowledge of of it all because nature is not just for one group of people right. so i think that it's important that we all you know harness this understanding and, and and open ourselves up to a deeper understanding of what, you know, the practices of other individuals and then in turn gives us a deeper understanding of each other. So we're not so foreign, you know, within our own communities, you know? And so, I, yeah, so I think that, um you know, Oshun is, is a wonderful one too, because we can all relate to her energy as, as we always talk about her in the Yoruba culture as being this creative, you know, this, this honey, this woman who, who, you know, who just will, you know, just excite the whole room, you know, and, and help you get to where you need to be. And so it could be an excitement, you know, sensual excitement, but it could also just be an excitement for, you know, what's come, what's coming, what's coming, you know. Right, right. Of course, of course. I enjoyed your book. You feel your book is, uh, you feel your book men can uh get something out of it or do you specifically only want women to uh, read it no i think men definitely can i think that um you know one of the things i, I always talk about is 
the internet, there's a lot of, um, especially within the African-American community now, presently, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, just dissension between men and women. You know, I think people get really brave on the internet, you know, <laughs> you know, the things that they would not say in, in person. And so I think, um, you know, there's this, this energy of, of just lashing out against each other, you know? And so I think the book itself will help, you know, men, you know, understand, you know, a different way of approaching, you know, or dealing with these women. And it will also help women, you know, to feel like if they're empowered enough that they don't need to um, take, you know, beat up on the men, you know, they can, they can do some of these things that they're accusing men of not doing for them, right, and a way of protection for themselves as well. And then there are still some rituals in there for men. So I think that it is, it is a, a learning, all of us, right, you know, with children, especially we have, I have sons, I have two boys, and, and, you know, yeah, so I think everyone can come into it, they can learn a lot, and then, they can share it, you know, share that information and have a better outlook on their relationships, right? And not just romantic relationships, but just how we deal with each other on a daily basis, you know? Yeah, yeah. And definitely stay off Twitter if you want better relationships. Yes, definitely. Right, right. You address this in your book. Why do you think there is a divide between uh, African-American men and African-American women right now? I think that... Um, you know, when when Trayvon Martin was killed, um, I think that women at that point in time, I talked to a lot of women, I did divination work for a lot of women, mm -hmm. and they were feeling like they were not, they needed protection for themselves and their children. And they felt like they, you know, they could scream as much as they want, but they felt like they needed the men to scream for them. And so that started the sort of... Um, downfall of the of the, a lot of the the relationship you know issues that they had they started you know trickling down from that and then I think you know as we start to you know have more and more you know murders and all this stuff happening and then women started to become victims you know it wasn't just a male thing it started to become women and then there's a lot of fear right and anxiety and so instead of um you know saying I'm 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 tired of what's happening to me. I think for a lot of people, it's easier just to turn on each other, right? Instead right. of trying to enact laws and fight against the system that is oppressing you, we become the oppressors because it's safer for us. It's easier. Yeah, yeah. You definitely need to, you definitely need to stay united because uh, mm -hmm. I, I know I sound conspiratorial, but I've told, I have a friend, uh, my friend Samuel Hanna, and he's part of the Black Separatist movement. And I'm like, man, I don't blame you because I, I hate to say it, but there's a eugenics program and there are certain groups that are not going to be allowed to grow. And I know people yeah. think I'm crazy, but I, I, yeah. I believe them. I and then, of course, you've got the evidence before everybody knew about the Tulsa massacre. I was writing right. articles and my black and white friends are like, oh, what do you what, who cares? And I was like, right. this is important. This is, and of course, then it became part of black consciousness in, you know, 2000. Right, 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 right. And then right. I kept, you know, the Talagita experiments, uh, mm -hmm. all these things, uh, you know, uh, bombing Black Panthers, Operation mm -hmm. Chaos, which mm -hmm. was trying to destroy, you know, the Black Breakfast mm -hmm. in Oakland. And mm -hmm. I was like, right. there are evil demonic factions trying to make sure that black magic and intellect does not get out because it's yeah. freedom it is right freedom. right and i right. think you're right it's like i'm like 
you need to tell people, you know, we either, as Benjamin Franklin said, we either stand together or we hang apart. <laughs> right. It is so true. It is so true. And, you know, I just, we talk, you know, since the book has come out, I've talked to a lot of people, men and women, African-American men and African-American women, and they they all say the same thing. They feel they feel this sense of love and a sense of urgency to um, try and pull it back in. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that from them because that 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 was that was my goal as well. You know, um, being a woman, I can speak from a woman's perspective, but I do not alienate anybody. You know, I want them to understand that, you know, the love, the nurturing, you know, because we always associate that with women. You know, if we can nurture ourselves and stop and being so hard edged about it, then we can open it up for our community, you know, and for African-American women, we understand that that's where it has to start. You know, a lot of our nurturing has to come from us. Right. And I think, um, you know, enslavement took a lot from from us, you know, and a lot of that that uh, stigma is still DNA related. I believe that. And so you know, you, when you're separated from your family, you know, you're doing all, all these things are happening to you, then, you know, it's easy when, when, when these killings started again, right, to have people, you know, that, that residual energy to come up and you, you start to get back into the angry mode. Well, you know, you, you really, what you're saying is you, you did not rescue me when I was enslaved and you can't rescue me now. So I'm, I'm, you know, what am I going to do, you know? And so I think we, we have to, we have to sort of, you know, uh, self-soothe, you know, and then we can soothe each other, but we have to really, you know, bring it back in, bring it back in. And that's what I, that's what I hope that the book would do for people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does a good job. And you're right. I mean, my wife has to correct me and she tells me, you know, ancestral trauma does not heal by itself. Doesn't matter if no. it's 50 years, a thousand years, our ancestors are still in pain or they're still talking to us. So I'm sure you would agree. Do you have a way or do you work with people to maybe heal some of those ancestral wounds? Yeah, I do. Um, I do a lot of past life reading. Okay. And what I always tell people is that, um, you know, there are because, you know, people, you know, when you say past life, people, a lot of people want to know everything. You know, was I Cleopatra? You know, of things course. like that. <laughs> you know, yeah, right, right. <laughs> right, right. Or Napoleon. Right. And so. um you know, I always tell them, you know, there's a lot of things that come up, but what usually sticks is what you need to work on in this light, right? It's the most residual energy that is, that is, you know, detrimental to your success right now. And so we usually go from that point and they, and then, and then they're, they're all for the Cleopatra and the pulling and thing. And then they really hone in and they understand, okay, so I have some work to do, you know? And so that, I think that that makes it easier for them. Um, to to receive. Um, and so that's what we usually do. We do that. And I say, I do the reading and then I, I send them the information. And I usually, I tell them all the time, I say, look, sit with this for about three days, right? I want you to read it, sit with, you know, go, do, go to work or whatever you have to do. You know, you have that three day period. And then if we can talk about it. You know, sometimes some people are, are like, it's heavy. I, I, can we talk, you know, a month from now? And that's okay, you know? Um, and so we usually, we, we usually come back together and talk about it and then they, they'll say, well, yeah, this, this is, it's off of what I was in the past life and more on, you know, I see these things playing out. I see this, you know, I understand this. And so we will talk about, 
um, works that they need to do. It might be um, a work that falls more in line with um, a Yoruba path, or it might be more hoodoo, um, you know, things like that, that they would have to do. And so that helps them. And so I, I usually follow them for about the next, you know, four to five months, see how they're doing. You know, we keep in touch. We talk about it, you know, how they're progressing. And then I tell them, you know, okay, for the next, you know, whatever it is, I divine on it. You know, I want you to, you know, live in your truth and see, see what happens, see what comes up for you. And so that's the way I usually do it. And it's not, for me, it has to be um, a connection. So it's not like I will do the reading and here you go, go ahead and have, have a nice day, you know? So it's, it's more, you know, let's see, you know, how you, how you can walk from this. Cause it's, it, you know, a lot of times it's, it's wobbly leg stuff, you know, they feel like I don't, I, you know, I wasn't ready for that because everybody wants to hear the great things, you know, but you know, the work, the work, the work healing, you know, for yourself, because I always tell them you can work on it now or you can, you know, live it again, you know? So, yeah. Definitely makes sense. And uh, Vance, uh, what do you think? Or do you have a question for Mawiya? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm interested in the um, the religion, philosophy, and so forth and practices. Um, basic question, is there a difference between hoodoo and voodoo? And if so, what is it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, um, well, voodoo for for one is a spirit. It's a it's, it's a religion. It's practice in that way. And so, hoodoo is not anybody. You can have people of any faith or belief system, and they could be a conjurer or a hoodoo practitioner. And that's the biggest difference. The people usually, you know, they'll bundle them together. You, you that hoodoo voodoo thing, and but they're totally different because hoodoo is its voodoo is its own religious practice and their their initiations that go with that right and then who do it not no not at all you know you could use the bible some people use the bible just for their spell work when they when they um work with who do some people don't use the bible at all they will just talk to their roots or whatever they're using so it's a very relaxed much more relaxed system you know it's a spiritual practice uh -huh. that can fit up under any type of if you want to call your, your religion it can fit neatly in, in there, packaged in there with it, whereas who, the voodoo is its own entity. Yeah. I see. So are, are there, um, as far as the spirit world, is hoodoo, uh, it must be more open in that regard too? I mean, that people use either saints or ancestors or maybe a mono, is there, are there monotheistic hoodoo practitioners or how does that work? Yeah, so people do, they do, um, some people do work with the saints and just the saints right? Our traditional saints, you know, we think of. Um, and some people work with their ancestors or they work with, I like to call heroes and heroes of their, or, you know, of their culture, right? Um, somebody they looked up to, Marcus Garvey, you know, it could be whoever and they could, they would, they would um, deify that individual, put them on their altar and work with that individual as well for certain aspects of the life that they live, that they feel like they can need to pull into their own lives. So yeah, it's very open about that, um, and it allow. And I think that's another reason too why you know you have a lot of women um, really, really gravitating towards it because it allows them the freedom to use people like Zora Neale Hurston, you know, um, you know, um, Audre Lorde, people that they look up to and resonate with um, as their deities and on their altar and talk to them and you know sort of motivate them to get them going. So yes. Hoodoo is very open in that regard of using that. And voodoo uses a lot of the, you know, their lowouts and then there's overlaps with some Yoruba. So they may use some of the same things there, but 
more hoodoo is much more where you can pull whatever you want. You know, however you want to put them there on the altar. You want to use a loa or you want to use a, a you know, a, someone from the Yoruba culture, Yoruba deity. You can do that as well in, in hoodoo. So it's much more open in, in that regard. I see. Even Elvis, huh? Because you think yes. people use Elvis? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Interesting. And how about the uh, do do um, the hoodoo practitioners uh, feel that these are real entities, or do they believe that it is more um, within their own minds, you know, as concepts, or how 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 is that conceived, or does it differ from person to person? I, I, it differs from person to person. I know for me, I think it is real energy. Um, and uh, uh, one of uh, uh, Louisa Teach, who wrote Jambalaya, I remember years ago, she was talking about, she was on this lecture and she was talking about how um, she would, she put up a picture of a Sojourner Truth on her altar. And, um, you know, she was afraid to do all of these speaking engagements. And she put her up there on the altar and she said for like a year, she could, it would just flow out of her. And so one day she said that, um, you know, the picture frame just fell off, you know, it just fell off the altar. And she figured that, that at that point in time, it was time to let, you know, let, let mama rest, you know, and, and just move on to a different, you know, saint or somebody that she would deify to use for energy and, and, you know, as she, as she needed, you know, to do. So, you know, yeah, it just varies from person to person, um, using that energy, how they see that energy in their life. Uh, you know, even if I use, I use Zora Neale Hurston a lot on my, um, in my altar work, because she did a lot of the study of uh, folklore for, especially for African-Americans. And she went and she, she, she was, she got initiated, you know, she was initiated to the Vodun aspects of things. She, she actually got initiated. She was an actual practitioner in, in hoodoo ceremonies. You know, she didn't just stand back with the tablet. She was full-fledged all involved. And so I like to keep her up there as a reminder of, you know, the work that I do. And as I wrote the book, you know, I had her right there on the side of my computer. So yeah, I look at her as an actual energy, you know, who is, who is motivating and helping me to um, see these passions through and, and to hopefully um, reconnect a lot of those um, traumatized roots. Mm -hmm. I see. So I, I imagine that it's mostly people that are no longer uh, alive on as physically on the earth that people use for this. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You wouldn't want to use your next door neighbor. <laughs> Even if he was a great guy. <laughs> Why do your boys relate to who do are they, uh, they want to be practitioners or are they too modern or what? Yeah. All of the kids, I have five, I have, I have two boys and three girls. So all oh. of them are initiated um, in, in the Yoruba system. And so um, for them, they do do a lot of hoodoo work. They do a lot of um, root, sort of root work. Um, that's what they do a lot of, um, you know, just with the herbs and things like that, collecting the herbs, you know, um, bundling everything, you know, and 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 uh, sitting with them in spirit mode and, you know, um, whatever prayers or whatever needs to be offered, they do a lot of that. You know, they like to do a lot of that, that, that um, the trappings of the nature things that we're going to be using. So yeah, they, it really does resonate with them. They were first initiated to Ifa in the Yoruba system. And so from that point on, they saw how that transformed their life. Because when you get initiated into um, the Yoruba system, one of the first things that they do is they, you know, they talk to you about your path, you know, where you're going, which are some things you need to do. And they give you a really extensive um, playbook, right? 
And so um, I think once uh, they saw that, you know, because girls, you know, girls, they, we love all things witchy. But the boys, I think once once they saw, you know, exactly what what was before them, right? And they and they saw, you know, a lot of the things that the Ia and the Baba, the lady and the man were saying, they um it it really sparked some interest in them because they understood that they knew a lot of things that happened to them before that nobody had said to them. And so at that point in time, they were really honed in on you know, how can I make my life better? As, as well as, you know, they, they felt the freedom of not being forced to sit inside of a church, you know, on Sunday. It's, you know, they could go sit outside, go take a walk in nature and say, you know, I'm, you know, channeling Obatala. I'm sitting with Obatala today. I'm going to go out here and do this, or, you know. And so that for them allowed them to feel like they have full autonomy over their own spiritual practice and their spiritual belief. So for, yeah, for the boys, they really, they really gravitated toward that. I think the freedom of it all. You know, I remember when when I was growing up, my brother would always um, try to ride his bike so he could avoid going to church, you know, and go back home and watch Batman, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Are they, are they voodoo or hoodoo or both? The, my the my children? Yeah. Oh, um, Yoruba, they're, they're initiated in the Yoruba system of Ifa and the hoodoo, they practice hoodoo as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're both. Yes. Oh, interesting. How And yourself as well, I take it? Yes. I grew up, um, I grew up, and when I grew up, my, my it's lots of hoodoo, my um, family on my mother's side, Vodun, voodoo, um, and so, and then on my father's side, uh, Santaria, so I was initiated to that as well, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a blend of all of it. Yeah, my godmother was Brazilian, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a yeah, mixture yeah. of Catholicism and Santeria. Yes, and yes, and yes. All that. Yeah. I had yeah. the best of both worlds when I was initiated. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, and of course, you say in your book that you do use the Psalms, you use tarot. So it can yes. be syncretic. You can kind of yes. make it your own. Yeah, I just believe, you know, the more tools you have, right? You you know, the the more in tune you can, you, you can't, you, you, you never have a chance to say, you know, I can't do this right now, you know, cause you have it with you. You have all of it. So yeah, I just feel like, you know, the more tools you have, the better equipped you are for any situation that comes. So yeah. So yeah, I, I just, I blended together. And that's one of the beautiful things about hoodoo. You know, you don't, you don't have to say, well, I can't do this because it doesn't go with this system. You know, you can pull from all of it, you know what I'm saying? And get, and get what you need. So yeah. No, it makes sense. And how do you feel it's making inroads? I, I don't have any statistics, obviously, for men, you know, Islam, Hoteps, uh, other movements have made inroads with uh, black men. Do you see, and I, but I'm assuming most black women are still Christian, or do you see the old ways making inroads? I see the old ways making inroads. Um, I see a lot of younger, um, you know, African-American women and men you know, um, wanting that freedom of study of hoodoo. You know, a lot of African-American men, when they step away from Christianity, they do, and, and Islam, you know, they do want um, to know about, you know, the Ifa aspect, the Yoruba aspect in terms of, um, you know, Shango and Ogun, you know, they resonate with the, well, definitely the male deities, right? And so once they get in, involved in that, then they also find themselves wanting more, right? And so they'll study um, hoodoo um, or Palo Mayombe, you know, they'll go into other avenues of study where they think that, where they feel that 
um, the more energy, the better for them, right? And more masculine. It makes them feel more, you know, more like a man, you know. So I, but, and with women, you know, I'm finding that um, they're just feeling like more, a lot of women have come to me, they feel like their needs are not being met within the church. Like it's a lot of um, making preachers' pockets fat, you know, and and not enough answering their problems, you know. It's like, it's like these old dead ways that that uh, are not servicing, you know, what's going on today, you know. Um, and if I, you know, some diviners will say, I'm just going to divine for you. And I'm just going to say what is written in Yoruba. I'm just going to talk to you. <laughs> and so they will send people actual their copies of you. They will say, you know, you want a copy of it. They'll email you a copy of the divination and all of it is in Yoruba. And then they sometimes they may translate some things and tell you what it says or whatever. But some people walk away and they go, okay, that's fine. You know, but I don't know how that applies to my life now in this world, in this place, in this time. And then you have other diviners who say, you know, okay, screw that. I'm going to talk to you in this language, right? So you can really understand what's going on. And so I just find that for women, a lot of times when they, when I work with them, that's the first thing they say. I understand this. Now, I understand this divination. I can take this when we get off this phone or when we, uh, or when I leave this internet, I can print it out, take this with me and I can understand what's going on. And that's what a lot of women find that they're not getting in um, traditional, you know, Western religion. It's a lot of, you know, just pray for it. It'll be okay. Go read this and not, how can I, how can I work with this? You know? So yeah. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'm sure like why people are attracted to Gnostic Christianity is because women have a divine feminine and Sophia, Mary Magdalene, which you don't have in Protestant Christianity or Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I'm sure women are like, I want something, uh, a goddess or an archetype. I can right, right. The feminine energies that are out there in the cosmos. So I'm sure that mm -hmm. helps. And interesting too, um, as you were saying, uh, you do talk about uh, some celebrities, and God, I, I had forgotten, or I, I don't shame on me, but I'd forgotten how big Charday was. I mean, yeah, mid '80s and early '90s. I mean, right, I was right. music every other day. She was mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and then of course she just kind of disappears. I, I right, right. She just, yeah, yeah. I just love that about her. I love that about her. I think that's so magical to do it and then just leave not even wanting to do interviews you know like she right. does yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so rare it's so rare <laughs> what what religion is she i don't i mean nigerian is she anglican muslim or i don't i don't, I don't know i know that at one time i think i have read that um she her grandmother was an oya priestess and so she did some work with her grandmother but i don't know you know how how committed to that she you know what i'm saying i don't know you know how much of that she um you know utilizes but i know she at one point in time i thought i read that he said that she worked with her you know in and that helped to kind of center her you know yeah well, but sense. yeah i i i thought that um you know incorporating the music and incorporating individuals and you know the playlists and all that i felt like you know for especially for african american people <laughs> a lot of times with our spirituality you know the music keeps it helps to keep us grounded right and it also helps us to call spirit and yeah. so when we um we're talking about a system that i want people to be able to access 
And I wanted them to be able to do it wherever they were, you know, if they were getting ready to go to work, or if they were in the car and they felt like they wanted to, you know, chant and sing this song in the middle of everything. I wanted it to be some things that that they felt like they could resonate with. And so, um, you know, the use of the music itself, when I talked to clients, they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, I could get with, yeah, I could do that. And I could see myself and I'm using this and I'm doing that. And so I thought that would be helpful for a lot of people not to have, you know, feel like you just have to have, you know, or, you know, a chant, you know, just this mystical chant that you're displaying and all your friends or all your colleagues are around, you know, it's something, it could just be this song by Whitney Houston and nobody has to know what you're doing, that you're doing magic, you know, nobody has to know what's going on in your head. And so I thought that that would be a powerful means of, of having them take their magic with them you know, and not feel that they're boxed in. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Whitney Houston, what I say is whenever you have a singer that is connected to Black gospel, which usually means Pentecostalism, which mm -hmm. usually means there's some sort of African animus hidden somewhere, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. Whitney Houston, Nina Simone, mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. you are getting close to the source. They're tapping into this mm -hmm. source, no mm -hmm. doubt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's so very much hoodoo, right? It yeah. is, you're taking the magic of right now, right? And you're using it in that way that services right now, you know, but it's still very liberating. It's still very healing. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of, uh, speaking of Elvis' sister, Loretta Tharp? I have heard of Loretta Tharp, yeah, but not much, not much. She needs to be brought to the forefront. She was, in fact... She is really Elvis's first main inspiration because she was in the 30s. She came from a very impoverished cotton picking farm in Arkansas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She started with the gospel and suddenly she became an international star, wealthy, mm -hmm. but she did it her way. She, right. she she evolved gospel. She would walk onto stage with her guitar and shake it. She wore wigs. She turned gospel into very feminine, sexual, and very powerful. And she became, again, international star. Elvis, as a kid, used to leave school early to get <laughs> home, to listen to the radio, to listen to her radio show, which was huge. In fact, she, some some music critics put her as one of the great guitar players because when it comes to guitar distortion, she invented it. So she mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. she's really a pioneer that unfortunately has been uh, forgotten. If there's good evidence she was a lesbian, and again she thrived. She she still could get the men excited out there on stage. Mm -hmm. So she was mm -hmm. uh, she was somebody that I hope uh, mm -hmm. we we bring to the forefront. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for your book, um, what just the title? Calabash, maybe tell the audience about that. How what's what does that mean? Why is it important? There are many stories about the Calabash, but one of the ones that resonate with me from growing up from both grandfathers um, is is just this whole um, energy. The bottom part of this Calabash, this like a shikare. This uh, you could you play it as a musical instrument. It res it it resonates with this this fat this wide hipped. I would like I always say bottom is this woman and the long elongated part of it is the masculine energy and this whole energy, the two coming together, you know, to uh, with this understanding that in order to survive, we both right have to make a pact with each other 
that we're going to support each other, right? It's not a calabash. You you chop the top off and just have the bottom, you know, it's so totally something else. And so the understanding that um, for a culture to survive, we have to come together. We have to make that pact of understanding that, you know, what what is born between us, we have to nurture together to its fullest so that we can um, enjoy the results of the fruit of those labors. No, it makes perfect sense. And uh, of course, I had to, I was, of course, attracted to the god Isu, the guardian mm-hmm. of the crossroads, because again, I I love the trickster. And of course, Elvis went, you know, he was kind of at the crossroads and Robert Johnson was at the mm-hmm. crossroads. Mm-hmm. And I know people like to say, well, that's the devil. He's like, no, you're looking at a, mm-hmm. a different character. He's not mm-hmm. the devil. He's, uh, mm-hmm. he's more this Loki. He's a, he gives you gifts, but he also mm-hmm. turns your life upside down and wreck your ego and show you a new way to see the world, right? Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. And uh, as we get to the end, uh, maybe... Um, share some of the rituals that people might can leverage or tap into that are in your book? Well, I, I think I always like to give people some things that I, I, I would assume, I would think that a lot of people have access to. So one, one of the main things that I would, would offer to people is if you do not, um, you know, have a lot of those herbs and things on hand, just using your water, taking your water, you know, taking a glass of water and, saying, speaking over that water, you know, whatever it is you want for that day, you know, whatever energy you would like to invoke for your life, even if you get ready to take a bath, a shower, same thing over that. And then, you know, allow that to wash over your body. Same thing if you're going to make a cup of coffee, you know, those kind of things in the morning or tea or whatever you're drinking, whatever it is, you know, whispering over those things. And, um, and bay leaves, if you have bay leaves, there was a wonderful, quick, easy um, tools to use, right? I like to write on my bay leaf what I want for that day, protection or whatever, and I put it in my shoe, um, things like that. Um, somebody's bothering you. This is another one of my favorites. Their name on a, a paper bag, um, the paper bag, the really paper one, not plastic, and um, write their name on that. I write their name on there nine times, any, any kind of way, just mess it up. And put it at the bottom of my shoe. Tape it to the bottom of my shoe. And I'm walking on them. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the audience, there's there's a lot of very cool rituals and spells in the book. You will find something that will work for you. But as we get to the advance, any uh, last questions or comments you might have for Mawiya? Yeah, Mawiya. Um, what's the most amazing thing that you have had happen in your career in hoodoo? You know, some sort of effect that would like be really impressive. Mm. Um, well, I guess I, there, there's been a lot. Let me think of one. Um, well, you won the lottery. No, <laughs> no, I, I would hate to end on this one, but it's kind of it's kind it's okay. But I can do this one. Um, well, I work at a, a school, and for the past 14 years, I've been the only African American person there, a teacher. Um, and so when I first got there, it was really, really difficult, um, you know, because we moved to northern part of Louisiana. We, I'm originally from New Orleans, but after Hurricane Katrina, we, took, we had to get the kids in school and everything. The oldest was in fourth grade at that time. And so we moved to the northern part of Louisiana because we teach and we wanted to stay where our certificates would be, you know, still work. Right. And so um, 
you know, the old, like I said, the only African-American there. And it was just, it was, it was, it was torture. It'd be feces in my garbage can the next day. They'd write all kind of mean things on the board. And so um, it, I was, I was at a point where I was like, okay, do I resort to, you know, who do, do I do that? What do I do? You know, do I, you know, do the human resources that, you know, what is it? And um, I was sitting in the room and my grandfather came, he had, he, he had passed many, many years before and um, he came into the room and then a lady came into the room and she said that she was the spirit of this area. And so she, she was really crass, you know, she was like, you know, well, what the fuck are you going to do? You know, <laughs> are you going to sit there and fucking cry? You know, and spirit is beating on me. My grandfather, he just stood there. He's like, look, you have to make a decision, you know, you know, you can run from this, you know, or, you know, you can stand and fight. And so that's all I'm saying. And then he left and she was just there. She was just going on and on. And so before she left, she gave me a hug, right? A, a, a hug. And I could really feel her energy. And so she told me that her name was Bad Grad. Mm. And so she left. And um, after that, I just, it just, I just got all these ideas of things that I were going to do. And I started working with my Adinkra symbols for, you know, in New Orleans, there were a lot of um, Adinkra symbols on, in the ironwork because the, uh, the Senegambia region of um, Africans, you know, when they came to the city, they were told to do all of this work. And so within that work, they put all of these messages. And so these Adinkra symbols, I always tell people kind of like sigils, they, um, were they spoke to other people, other 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 Africans, you know, the language, and you still see it in the ironwork there if you go there, right? And so I'd use these symbols in my room and I just would put them in, you know, picture frames and put them here and everywhere. And, you know, within a, a period of time, some of those people, they got a job, they were, they were removed from the job, you know, other people came in and it just started to get much better, much better, much better. And, um, That's good. you know, she would, she would come, she would still come and she, she wasn't current, you know, she wasn't doing all the cursing anymore. She would just sit and smile, you know? And so I think for me, um, you know, I could have ran from that. I could have gotten out of that. I could have done a lot of different things, but I think that fight helped prepare me to write this book. So, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Great. You're to welcome. Hear. You're welcome. All right. Great. We are at the end of the interview. Where do you want uh, people to find out more about you? I'll have it on the show notes, but where should they look for your book or anything? Definitely. Um, the Barnes and Nobles go anywhere, Amazon, Llewellyn for the book. Um, but if they want to know, you know, things that I'm doing, go to my website. My, it's my name, maweakaieljamabomani.com. And then there they can link up to all my other sites from there. So that would be the best place for them to go. Awesome. Yeah, we'll check it out. And uh, yeah, I'll have it on the show notes when the interview is out as mm -hmm. you're listening to this. So you can just click it. But uh, yeah, Mawia, thank you very much for coming thank on. Thank you guys for having me. I'm sorry about all my technical difficulties. It happens. It happens. The spirits are playful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that Ogun energy, right? He's like, no. <laughs> well, thank you very much and good luck with everything. Thank you. And there you have it, you modern-day Tom Sawyers. Your mind not for rent to any god or government. Mawiya sharing some powerful gnosis. Now let us to our chat with David Lee on an arc of chaos magic and other cool mysticism.
This is the AM Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by David Lee to discuss his new book, Primordial Chaos, Writings and Rituals Then and Now. David, how are you? And thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm very well, thanks, Miguel. And uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Pleasure is all mine. So I guess uh, why don't we tell the audience or why don't you give a brief summary of who you are and how you came to uh, write Primordial Chaos? Well, I mean, it's very much, uh, you know, as, as the title suggests, it's a, a lot of it is about stuff that happened way back in the day. And um, I'm... I was one. Of, I was a founder member of the first Chaos Magic IoT Chaos Magic group in in Britain in uh, West Yorkshire in 1980. I was one of the people that was in that first group, and um, so I've been around. I'm still I'm still in the IoT. I'm still active in it. I serve as what's called an elder now. You know, kind of like not having to do a great deal, but still still uh, still helping out sometimes so i've been around on the chaos magic scene for over 40 years basically um i'm not i haven't written as many books as some people who <laughs> been around been around like that i wrote uh, i wrote a few books i wrote a book about uh, making incense i wrote another book about magic and its interface with mysticism uh, that's chaotopia i wrote um a book about the nor northern magic, which is another of my interests, uh, the runes and so forth. And more recently, about six years ago, I, I wrote a book about breath work and energy work and its connection with magic. So um, this is this is um, kind of looking back over my magical life. It's not actually a memoir in itself, but it contains memoir elements. So it's like, start, you know, it's like, some chaos magic writings that were in the the zines of the time, like Chaos International. Then um, some writings in in the Northern Magic and writings about psychedelics and body alchemy. And finally, the final section has got uh, a whole chunk of stuff on public rituals I've done, stuff that I've I've worked up either on my own or with other people collectively. Worked up rituals for a bunch of people to do. Fascinating. Yes, your book has it all, including you, know, you have designs, uh, images, rituals, uh, the whole the whole nine yards. So there's something there for everyone. So I guess uh, the question would be, uh, what has changed in the last 30 or 40 years? I mean, obviously, society has greatly changed. I was just thinking, God, the 90s. Huh? I kind of miss going to the video store or putting yeah. a in my thing or a more simple life what has changed in your estimation oh my god that's a big and challenging question um yes yeah, sure there's all the obvious stuff i mean there's you know the internet and social media the um awareness of the climate crisis these are two of the things that have changed things the most in the last 15 20 years um before that, it seemed just, you know, an, a, a sort of a staircase of technology that was getting more sophisticated all the time. And all of a sudden, there's another side to it. So I think, um, I think one of the, 
one of the upsides, I guess, is just this is a purely consumer thing in a way, is that you can find anything. Well, not anything, but you can find a lot of things that used to be very difficult to find. You can find books that may or may, or may, or may not be out of print. You can find old videos and so forth. There's a lot of stuff you can find. There's some really good features to the Internet. And as it was first designed and conceptualized, it was a liberating force. But then, of course, you know, big business got in there and... Um, messed it up like they always do um you know human the human capacity to screw things up finally manifested on a grand scale and so we've now got um the so-called post-truth era where people you know pe people think that if something makes them feel good emotionally that it's true and um you know so there's yeah there's been upsides and downsides i don't know whether i got want to get any more i don't have any inspiring kind of specific things to add to that at the moment but maybe we'll come back to that sure 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 yeah i mean do you feel for the magic community do you feel positive do you have a good sense in your gut or maybe disillusioned uh how do you feel today about the where we're going I'm old enough to have seen a few cycles come and go of of magical interest. I'm actually quite enjoying the cut. There's a massive magical revival on at the moment. I mean, since, I don't know, certainly the last 10 years, um, it's been particularly intense in the last few. And I think that that, of course, has its plus side and its minus side as well. Um but I'm, in general, I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, a friend of mine runs a a shop which has got one section of it is a bookshop, a bookshop cafe meeting place. It's where we'll be holding my book launch on Saturday, Airy Fairy in Sheffield. And um, we were chatting during the lockdowns, and she said that uh, in, in the first year, when there was you know, the first year that coincided with the lockdowns, she'd had to order about twice as many magic books as on the previous year. There was a massive surge of interest in magic. And this is at the same time I was writing a piece about the craziness of so-called conspiracy theory. I use scare quotes with conspiracy theory because, of course, there are real conspiracies, except that they're played out in full view. There isn't a great deal of secrecy there. Um, and... You know, so I thought, wow, yeah, this is what's happening, isn't it? People are getting into magical thinking, and this is great. But, of course, a lot of people that get into magical thinking completely abandon their critical faculty. So they end up, you know, they end up believing in garbage like Pizzagate and things, rather than actually stepping out into constructing a magical reality of which the critical faculty is a part. So I, I'm actually pretty, you know, although there are some horrendous beliefs going around out there at the moment i'm i'm fairly uh confident that the magical scene has got has had a real growth spurt recently and i've met some terrific people who've, who've come into the magical world in recent years well that's yeah that's certainly good news uh to see more choices the hold of the abrahamic religions is not as strong as it used to be technology yeah. allows us to find what works for us for our own spiritual world inner world uh and all that so that is uh certainly good news yeah and as far as conspiracy theories uh i don't know if you agree but whenever somebody is attracted to conspiracy theories i don't say what is the conspiracy but why is it conspiracy oh yes i did why were you attracted to pizzagate or ufos or john f kennedy and usually we'll find there's something inside of us that needs to be addressed some trauma some journey mm. People will be arguing 20 years from now about JFK and, and the, lone, the lone gunman. 
but what's inside of you, what attracted you, is probably more important, don't you think? Well, I, I think in an era where so much of what's going on is visible, obviously there are still secrets, but so so much of what happens in the world is visible. Uh, it's terrifying, really. I mean, because news by its nature is negative. You know, bad news travels fast. You know, what was it? I think, uh, who was it? I can't remember who said it. It might have been Mark Twain, you know, that uh, a truth, uh, a lie can get round the world before the truth has even got its shoes on. And, um, you know, so that was in whatever, you know, that's over a century ago, um, even more, even more true now. So I think we've got, um, yeah, but people can find communities amongst all of this and they can find that they, you can find the others of your particular persuasion, which is which is one of the positive sides of of internet culture. Yeah, that is true. We're all looking for communities and a connection. And at the same time, your book does talk about uh, one of the negative forces today, and that is scientism. As you write, David, you write. Uh, Yep. Science is a tremendously useful mythology that applies logic to physical phenomena and enables new technologies. Its approach to truth is, at its best, open-ended and non-dogmatic. Yes. Scientism, on the other hand, is a religion. It adheres, declare, it adherents declare that science is the only way of approaching truth and that any experiences that cannot be explained or explained away by scientific truth as it stands today must be invalid or even delusions or hallucinations. So basically, there's that double-edged sword where these communities are, are gaslighting us and telling us, well, you're crazy because you're not following what we believe, which is the materialist reductionist uh, attitude. Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, the um, magical thinking is actually right there in the Bible of psychiatry, the DSM, you know, as, as a symbol of as a symptom of being crazy. So um, if you start to think that there is a mysterious connection between your will and what's going on around you, you're, you're technically crazy. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I mean, I think scientism is as, as crappy as every other religion I, I don't like religions and scientism is just another religion it's a it's a bargain basement religion it doesn't even provide satisfaction it's just a sort of it's just like some sort of ontological police force at the edge of reality beating you over the head with slogans <laughs> yeah I, I, I would certainly agree and I mean there is something that humanity has forgotten. That uh, quoting my uh, one of my Lord and Saviors, Doctor Who, he once said, uh, <laughs> uh, souls are not made of atoms, they're made of stories. And of course, Joseph Campbell said, you know, people don't understand facts, they understand stories. And even neuroscience has stated that our minds are still what they were 100,000 years where we, we saw images and symbols and narrations linear thinking is still kind of alien to humans right and it seems magic is a way is that language you might say to get us to under to unlock the secrets of who we are yeah it's a challenge i think we need to assimilate scientific thinking we need to abandon scientism completely but we need to assimilate scientific thinking it's something that's it's only really been a dominant aspect of culture for a few centuries and it's tremendously useful and it's also very much, a, you know, it's it's an aspect of rational inquiry is an aspect of human consciousness. It's not something to be ashamed of and to be put down in the corner. But 
scientism, the idea that that's the only way to approach reality is absolutely dismal. It's a prison planet mentality. It's, uh-huh. yeah. And you yourself in your book say that you started practicing magic in October 1978. Uh, how has that changed your life for the better or what experiences have really shaped you? Oh, um, well, a num- there's been a number of experiences that have shaped me that I've had magically, but uh, how it's changed my life, that is a really big one. I think that it's a case of finding what really matters to you. I guess you, you'll, you'll be familiar with that idea. I mean, just at a certain point, you, you, you just need to, to find the view of life that really matters to you and go along that. It's your own path and go along that path and find out where it takes you. And um, if magic... Um, you know, when I was about 18 or 17 or something like that, I wanted to do things that have never been done before. You know, it was all like, wow, doing things that haven't got a name yet, in the, in the words of the song. But uh, I, and that became magic for me. So magic became my life in a certain sense. Um, I have, I have gained thing, you know, things um, from magic, but I think really it's the satisfaction of, well, satisfaction is perhaps even that is perhaps a rather a inaccurate word, but it's the some degree of fulfilment of moving along a road which is to do with one's own truth at the deepest level you can. You know, the deepest. Oh, God, that sounds so pretentious, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, finding one's own truth really magic for me. It's been very much a case of of that. It's a, that that's the name I put on it. Magic. It's been it's been a case of living as vividly as possible that's really what it's about living living with as much richness as possible and this comes about by being able to change the way you view the world so that is that is where magic comes in magic enables you to shift out of the the black iron prison of scientism and move into a way of looking at the world that's to do with synchronicity and a cause or a causal connection it's to do with the linkedness of things and the way that there the features of the mind or the will are connected, definitely connected with stuff that's going on around you. So that that's the reward, really, to find how to live like that. Yeah, bringing back Joseph Campbell, he did say it's not about the meaning of life, it's the experience of life. Mm. And uh, yeah, thanks for the Philip K. Dick uh, term, Black Iron Prison, yeah. <laughs> taking us to the Gnostics. Uh, and that's always going to be the balance, right, David? Uh, we want that world, again, of images and experiences and magic. But on the other side, we want to stay grounded in logic, reason, and facts. And that's that's a hard uh, that's a hard dance, don't you think, sometimes? Yeah, we all want to be Plato's hermaphrodite or the Adam Cadman where every, you know, Jung, everything's united. But it's not easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, people burn out. People people get exhausted and burn out and grasp for some degree of certainty. It's only this afternoon I was thinking about three people I've known over the last few years who've had kind of magical well, it wouldn't be fair to say that one of them has had a magical burnout. Nobody really knows what happened to him, but he sort of like went into from being very active in magic, went into religion, conventional religion. Somebody else I know who was very active in magic who did have all the signs of a burnout in his communications with people went into a conventional religious stance and the other person who had a spectacular 
kind of public burnout, a blogger. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give his name. Hopefully, he's doing better now. He um, uh, became uh, an absolute scientism tub thumper. You know, nothing is nothing, mystery. Nothing, nothing is real except you know, scientific facts, that kind of thing. So, yeah, people do occasionally burn out and sort of, you know, head for the um, head for the the cotton wool reality of of some religion or other. It is it is a difficult it, it is a difficult um, line to walk. Yeah. And how would you describe magic, David? I mean, after all, like I often tell people. One of the most mystical, alchemical, magical rituals of all is the is the uh, Catholic Mass. They got it right. It is completely alchemical. It is about, you know, dying and rising with the God-Man, uni- unifying with his body, and the you know, f- you know, bread into flesh, and wa- you know, wine into blood, and done right with the incense and the and the choir all that it's it's very magical but when people ask you what is magic what do you usually say oh um, that's a good one i would say that it's a way of um living living one's life to the absolute full um and that's that's a pretty all, all definitions of magic if they're broad enough are, are a bit vague and that's certainly a vague one but yeah no, that makes sense. That certainly makes sense. And how would you uh, describe or tell people about what is chaos magic when they ask you or they're curious? Okay, yeah, well, to me, chaos magic is, its core idea is the power of belief, the power of belief to influence and to, to some extent, construct your reality. So that when you, um, the first thing you do when you go into your magical working or you go into your magical temple is that you have to shift into being a magician. That's the first layer of belief. You know, instead of being, I am an accountant, I am a a bartender or um, I am a physicist or whatever, it's I'm a magician now. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to shift into that. That, of course, is because of, you know, because of the dominant, the dominant reality in this age is the, uh, you know, is, is scientism so you have to do that for a start but even then what you 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 have to find a way to kind of convince yourself that a different reality is happening so that when you draw your sigil you're you're telling yourself something and then you're you you're kind of forgetting about the conscious part of that letting it sink into your mind so again you're using belief in a certain sense it's some some people would argue you're not um I, I think you are really. I think you're still using belief there. The idea of deciding something is true, and um, it, it is central. The other thing about chaos magic is that it's there is there's a very pragmatic side to it. If it works, use it. So if you if you you can use stuff from psychology, you can use stuff from mysticism, you can use stuff from ceremonial magic, so on and so forth. If it works, use it. There's this, so it's very pragmatic, and it's very much based on the idea of the, the centrality of belief and symbol systems that have accrued around magic, such as the runes, such as Kabbalah, such as tantric symbolism, and all of that. They are just specific examples of of belief systems and you can go to the core of that learn what it's really about and work that stuff for yourself no well said indeed and wasn't chaos magic a a, a reaction or a heresy like well all religions or movements are either a reaction or a heresy but it was a reaction against what the the tight and terse 
uh, ceremonial magic that was dominating? It was giving people uh, more breathing room? Or what do you think, David? Why did chaos magic appear? Besides fighting scientism years later. <laughs> yeah, I think what you've just said is, is true. It was also a reaction against um, the scientism influence, psychologization of magic. You know, yeah, maybe, you know, some people were, oh, yeah, kind of magic kind of does work, but it's all to do with, it's all your mind. You know, your mind's bigger than you think, but it's all your mind. And so getting beyond that, and it was also, um, it was it was a reaction to the assumption that you had to start off believing. It's, it's a reaction to the idea that you had to start off assuming that gods and spirits were real. I mean, Alistair Crowley was, you know, he was a very advanced magician for his time, and he still stands like a colossus right across Western magic. You know, he's there. You can't you can't go anywhere without seeing without seeing uh, Crowley. Right. You know, his stuff basically. There is even though it's supposed to be experimental and quite scientific and the method of science, the agent, the aim of religion and all that. It's actually, there are some assumptions in there and it's very difficult to use Crowley's conceptions of Kabbalah without sort of believing in some cosmic reality to start with, you know, or in Kethel or in, or in the, uh, the beyond in the veils. And then all this kind of like, you know, crystallizes down until you get to Malkuth. So it's, you still had to start off with a certain amount of, metaphysical assumptions i think that's what it amounts to you have to start off with quite a bag full of metaphysical assumptions to work crowley's magic whereas with chaos magic you didn't you can start that's why it appealed to me when i was in my mid-20s and doing um post-grad recite you know research in science and um but i was really interested in magic but i kept being put off by currents of magic that appeared to be trying to forget that science ever happened um whereas when chaos magic came along i was thinking oh this is me this is what you know this is this is magic for skeptics this is magic for people who um some basic techniques you take up the techniques you decide to do something weird stuff happens wow that worked that sigil works that actually worked and that flips over your idea of what reality is yeah rather than the sigil's probably what what it's for is almost unimportant, almost completely unimportant. What is important is that it shifts your metaphysics, it shifts your cosmology. It enables you to, to, to acknowledge that you're living in a world where weird things are possible, and that's what appealed to me about chaos magic. No, that makes perfect sense. And you yourself have done a lot of study and insights, or maybe you want to share with the audience from your book. For example, you talk about... Uh, you found a new approach to Crowley's Lieber AL uh, and other uh, things. Uh, maybe you want to share with the audience or how uh, your exploration of the concept of aeons and magic inspired by Crowley's three aeons and Pete Carroll's five aeon model. The aeon stuff is, um, yeah, it, it's very interesting. I find it very um it was very powerful for me. It was a real draw, the Aeon stuff. You know, Crowley's idea that you've got the Aeons of Isis, you know, going, going back to the pagan era, um, other you know, people close to nature. Then you've got the rise of the um, of the monotheisms, especially of the dying god. You know, so there's only one god, and he's like Jesus-type <laughs> god. And... Um, then, you know, in the third aeon, it's like the, um, we had the mother, the father, and then we get the child, the crowned and conquering child, Horus. And um, there is, I can see a certain amount of validity in that model. 
a certain amount, you know, a certain amount of mileage you can get out of that. I mean, if you only look at public media today, it's incredibly infantile. I mean, that's really the the sort of low side, the dark side of the aeon of horrors. People, even people are resorting to baby talk again. I know it's this fashion for baby talk over the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, people saying words like um, poo and tummy, which nobody over the age of eight used to say. <laughs> um, this is infantilization, which, of course, is lovely for late-stage capitalism. Right. Um, and I think that is the dark side of the aeon of horrors. But the other side of it, the... Um, that it's not to do with authority. You cannot find authority, you know, you cannot find effective authority handed down metaphysically from above um, the old Aeon of Osiris stuff. So we're, we're out of that now. We've got to find inner truth and we've got to follow that. And that this is the, the voice in the silence, you know, Huaparkrat, um, your holy guardian angel, your higher self, what you want to call it. Your contact with that emerges from your magical practice. And so I get that. Yeah, Aeon of Horus certainly works. But I liked then what Pete Carroll did. He came along and split things up a bit more. So the Aeon of Isis yeah, gets spread out, gets taken into shamanism, followed by paganism. So shamanism is hunter-gatherer spirituality. Paganism is early city-states, pre-industrial city-states. Then you get imperial type spirituality which is you know monotheism it's like the um the spirituality of of conquest and getting everybody else under your flag so you can force them all to believe in the same thing um and then after that you get atheism which is kind of like a little bit like the aeon of horus but i think it's more precise in a way what it says about culture scientism if you like i would call that scientism that fourth aeon and then of course in pete carroll's model the fifth aeon is the pandemonium where we'll go kind of beyond atheism into an awareness of let's say baphomet you know the the living spirit of the entire planet all the living all the life forms on this planet and we won't worship it but that will be in a way the equivalent of our god so we've gone beyond atheism and I thought, well, okay, that's I rather like that model. That worked for me for a while. Back in 1992, I did a, um, a recorded pathworking with music called the Galafron Rite, which is still available from one of the um, Falcon companies, one of the new Falcon companies, um, as a disc. That's um, that was a case of like. You know, it's a pathworking that started off from it, was, it exactly followed Pete Carroll's model. You know, it starts off from shamanism and ends up in in the pandemonium. But then years later, I started to question all this. Oh, yeah, but actually, the, the, the bit that comes in then is that people who aren't even into magic are, are thinking like this. You, you probably come across um, a mystical philosopher called Ken Wilbur. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's someone who I got quite interested in about 20, his writings about 20-odd years ago, and I started reading a few of his. And I, I sort of went off his stuff after a while because, for a start, he doesn't get magic. He doesn't get what magic's about. <laughs> magic for him is just primitive superstition. Unless, of course, it's from done by people who are completely enlightened, and then it you know gets a bit fuzzy at the end. But anyway, <laughs> but his, he, he rejigged something called spiral dynamics, which in turn was a it was a bit of a sort of like model for analyzing businesses and things, but it came from um, uh, a sociological study 
done by somebody called Claire Graves back way back in the day. And um, Spiral Dynamics is Aeonics by another name. So that, you know, that um, I, I think their first Aeon is nonsense. <laughs> the, f- the first, they call them memes rather than Aeons. Right. The first meme is nonsense. The second meme is purple. And that's essentially shamanism. The third meme is like red, which is essentially paganism, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get to fifth aeon, you've got something called yellow, which is supposed to be a conspectus of everything. So that you've got, you know, you're looking back, you can utilize all of the aeons. And I think that's very much like chaos magic. So that's a yellow meme. And I thought, oh, this stuff's got some mileage. So I start looking at the predictions of the of the later memes, what are they supposed to do? And uh, the whole thing gets a little bit incoherent. And then I went really off it because I started to think about, well, all of this stuff is very Euro or it's very sort of West Civ centric, you know, I don't say Euro centric, but Euro stroke American centric. It's very much Western civilization centered. Um, And ultimately it's based on an idea of progress because what Wilbur was trying to do was trying to say, look, you know, I know things look shit at the moment, but Spirituality is coming together with intellectual understanding of of the world through science. It's coming together with psychology and psychotherapy. It's all going to become glorious and wonderful. And this is a progress vision. And I, oh, you know, I, I think we've all got great reasons to doubt the ideology of progress. Certainly, in few ways, um, certain aspects of things do progress certain aspects of technology do progress as for human ability to utilize them positively um that doesn't seem to progress or it certainly you know doesn't seem to have got far enough so i i became having become disenchanted with progress in general that that made me somewhat disenchanted with aonics no that makes sense and really well said and speaking of progress and changing times um have you experienced any of the infamous cancel culture that goes today, for example, oh. in this era? If you mention, if you mention Alistair Crowley, Julius Evola, uh, Kenneth Grant, or there's, you know, anybody who's not sinless, which would, which doesn't exist, but you do get a, uh, you do get a big pushback. Or even H.P. Lovecraft, God forbid. So have you had to navigate those these hard waters? Uh, yeah, yeah, to some extent I have. I, t- I, I try and not get into public arguments with people, you know, but uh, sometimes <laughs> it's, it's unavoidable to stumble into some of that morass. I mean, I um, a few years ago I um, did some co- I sent some course proposals to a course presenter in the UK, somebody who puts online courses on. And um, a few course proposals, and they, they, they saw one and said, oh, wow, that um, – introduction to rune magic yeah we'd love that one that's terrific so i sent them you know so it was all scheduled they started selling tickets for my course and um so that the material would be on their servers make it simpler for them i sent them the videos and the pdf handouts for the course and guess what they read them and because i'd mentioned the rune guild and edred thorson they cancelled the course and oh, wow. um I got literally cancelled because I've mentioned them in, you know, in one of the handouts. It wasn't even like I was saying, you know, really bigging them up. But, you know, I'm a member of the Rune Guild. Um, I don't have to agree with everything 
that everybody says within the Rune Guild, you know, I've got my own runic path, but that's not what, you know, that's to me what the Guild's about. But, oh, any association with it is absolute anathema, you know, or oh, you're all Nazis, you know, kind of thing. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was it was absolutely bizarre. It took me six weeks of incredibly polite emailing to even find out what the rumours were that led to this. And, um, you know, it's very bizarre. I think that this cancel... OK, I know that cancel culture is sometimes used by far-right people to sneer at anybody who is, is you know, sneer at anybody who's critical of the, of the connections um, in someone's life. And uh, I, I do get that. But... There is certainly, you know, there's certainly a real thing happening there. And I think that it it's very closely related to the idea of the artist and the art. Like, you know, I came across somebody a couple of years ago saying, oh, I could never study the magic of Alistair Crowley because he was such a horrible person. And on certain levels, I can definitely get that, you know, like he was appalling to women and he was appalling to some, you know, to for men as well. Um, and, you know, the... He was not a nice person, but it doesn't mean that his his magic's invalid. Just as, for instance, you know, a lot of people say Picasso was a, a pretty awful person, but it doesn't mean that his art's rubbish. You may think his art's rubbish, and that's a separate question. You know, that's completely separate. Um, I think it's important, to, to, very important, to separate the artist out from the artwork, even if you keep in mind some of the, the artist's dodgier aspects, like Lovecraft's revolting racism you know it's a, what what's going on about but his stories are you know his he he was the first in a way one of the first people to really take the terror of a godless world and write about that terror instead of just about spooks and things like that he, he deepened the idea of literary terror enormously and of course other people have taken up some of his ideas and even some of his stories and rewritten them, which is great. I love, love it when people do that, sure. I read um, uh, a novelette, a short novel by, um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name now. I've never heard of the writer before, but it was, uh, I bought it as an e-book and it was a complete rewriting of um, the, horror at the Horror at Red Hook, I think is the name of the oh, story. Yeah. It's one of his, you know, one of his, it's a very, very good story, but it's horrendously racist. And this is told from the black person's perspective, and it's a really good novel. I strongly Love recommend it. it. Yeah, the horror it read. Uh, it's called, oh, God, I'll have to find it out. And I'll tell you what, I'll find it out and stick it in the chat for you to, to append later rather than slow things down now. So I think it's very important to to distinguish the art from the artist. Oh, I, w- I would agree 100%. I mean, uh most thelemites that i talked to they always said yeah i love the magic but i would never hang out with crowley i would not go out for drinks with him i'm the same way it's like i love lovecraft but i wouldn't want to sit for dinner with him <laughs> so yeah yeah so you can and it's interesting and for the record i mean we talk about cancel culture that was something that was started and weaponized by the christian right and now it's kind of gone to the left, although both sides still want to cancel Aleister Crowley, both the Christian right and the, you know, the uh, woke left. So it's kind of interesting. He's always going to be a target for people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, there's some people who offend just about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He certainly did it. He was a 
He was groundbreaker. And the other thing, too, David, that you do talk about in your book in several chapters, and of course, this is an important topic and it's uh, can be as confusing as technology, is that of uh, psychedelic practices and medicine. Uh, what is your take on how things have changed? Obviously, pharmaceutical companies have sort of... Uh, well, they've kind of muddied the waters, and but we do live in a society where now a lot of these entheogens are available. They're no longer illegal. They still can be abused, like anything. Um, but uh, what is it? How has been your evolution with uh, drugs? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, of course, entheogens can be can be abused, but I don't think any good has ever come out of the illegalization of drugs. I think it's an entirely negative thing. Um, when I was uh, in my teens, you know, in the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, well, like, you know, end of the 60s, when I was a teenager and um, taking illegally produced LSD. And I mean, I was part of a, a little subculture that was, okay, we were actually a bit, you know, a bit, a bit proud of ourselves, a bit sort of, oh, we are the future kind of thing. But, you know, that kind of, a th I'm sure you're, you're aware of that kind of thing. But it was such and it's such an important set of experiences for me. I mean, that's what got me into magic, essentially, or rather back into magic, because later I realised that I'd been into magic until about the age of three or four, when my dad told me it wasn't real and I believed him. And so, of course, I started studying science, which was <laughs> the next best thing for me. Yeah. I was only in my late teens taking acid that um, I had actual magical experiences and started rethinking it, although... It took me years to assimilate those experiences. So I went on and got a science degree in the meantime and then realised that I still still needed the magic. So psychedelics have been enormously influential and important and positive for me. Um, I've also found them healing in many respects. So I understand the, um, the medicalization of psychedelics that's happening now. Of course, there's a couple of things about that. On the plus side, as um, a writer who name again i can't remember a paper i read um sometime last year there was a journal which still exists online it's no longer a paper journal psychedelic press journal strongly recommended it was in there and it was an article about um the medicalization of psychedelics as being a trojan horse for the whole of culture so that you know that the, the people people are gaining a more positive idea rather than it just being you know crazy manson hippies and everything it's people are now gaining a positive idea of psychedelics and this in turn might usher in a stage where they're used for things other than medicine um but on the other hand you've got um something happening where this medicalization i don't think is healthy in <laughs> you know culturally in some respects i don't think it's culturally healthy to imagine that that psychedelics only do healing you know sometimes you can take your your mushrooms or whatever and lie down with your shades on and your 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 carefully curated playlist and do the you know the mushroom healing thing but it might work it might work or, or it might it might work and you might get fantastic results i know people who have i've had fantastic results but it's also possible that an hour into it you start thinking it's all done you know, the mushroom's fed up with this and wants me to do something else. So get up and make a cup of tea and think about what to do next, you know. And it's um I think this is this is an inherent part. They are they are drugs of chaos. They really are. They're drugs that destabilize the 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 top down um linkage systems in the brain and enable enable new kinds of linkages to form. And because they 
because they enhance neuroplasticity, they enable new neural connections to form. All of this can happen very fast in the course of you know just a few hours. So um, there's all sorts of potential usages for them, not not just medicinal. Although, like I say, I'm glad to to see that people are getting healing from them in the mainstream. Yeah, well, it's like anything, David. It's fire from the gods, whether it's magic, psychedelic, science. Uh, what, what did Jung say? Everything casts a shadow. Something's going to help <laughs> you one day. It's going to destroy you the next day. So um, I would agree. I mean, my stance, and I tell people, well, I tell people, do what you want. I, I don't think these drugs are helping society because I think as a culture, we're not ready for them. So I think cannabis and other things are doing more damage, especially when you combine it with uh, the digital age. But as an anarchist, I think they should be legal. But I tell people, it's like a mystery religion. If you're going to use entheogens, have a good hero fan, have a good teacher, have somebody that will guide you into the underworld. I think I see where you're coming from here, Miguel. You're talking about one of the other main touted uses of psychedelics, which is as a sacrament. And I agree that is also a major and important use of them. But again, I don't think that's the only the only use of them. And have you ever come across a British scientist called um, David Nutt, Dr. Nutt, N-N-U-T-T? Um, no, I'm not. Somebody who deals with all sorts of crazy stuff. He was uh, commissioned by the government about oh, like 15 years ago or something to do um, a report on which drugs were the most harmful an objective, scientifically done report. You know, this is actually thousands of hours of work, but hospital record, in, in hospital records and so forth, and talking to specialists to find out what people get admitted for, how much it damages them, how long the damage lasts. And he came up with a league, it was commissioned to do this, he came up with a league table of the least dangerous down to the most dangerous drugs, and the government fired him. What? They said that it didn't send out the right message. In other words, the truth sent out the wrong message. And, and on Nutt's scale of actual provable harmfulness of drugs, psilocybin is the least harmful of all psychoactive drugs that are used. And the most harmful is the group around methamphetamine, um, you know, crack cocaine, heroin, they're all, and alcohol is not far off of those. Alcohol is immensely harmful. Whereas, like, there's a vast gulf between the harm done by um, alcohol and psilocybin and even LSD. So, and cannabis is almost completely harmless as well on that scale compared to just about everything else. So, uh, yeah, well, have a look. What was the government so offended about? Did they want uh, mushrooms to be higher up or <laughs> what was yeah, their angle? Yeah, they have some. You know, some stupid, dumbass prejudice against people getting high and want to enforce. Right, right, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Only if they create it. Only if they manage it and create their synthetic version. But yeah, God forbid it comes from the ground. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess times are just as strange as they've always been. And also, another thing that you explore too is. In your book, our ideas on uh, hypnotism, self-hypnosis, uh, the intersection with psychedelics, you even talk about uh, NLP. Could you share with the audience what your experiences are or how it can help your magical practices? Oh, okay. Um, I got interested in NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, in the mid-90s. Um, a friend of mine um, got 
you know, got into it, got his practitioner certificate and showed me a few things. And I used to go along because I got, you know, some lower back issues. He used to go on this osteopath who also used to do that on me and help me through issues while he was crunching my back, which was nice. Um, so I thought, oh, this is great. I need this stuff. So I went on a course um, over a year, you know, um, got my practitioner certificate and I really enjoyed it. But later I went off it a little bit. It's, it was so over-marketed. Um, you know, and everything that's over-marketed promises more than it can possibly deliver, even though there are some really good features to NLP. I think one of the key ideas in NLP that's really worth sticking with is modelling. The idea that if you, if someone is excellent at something, and if you go along and not only watch them doing it and look at the, you know, the algorithm, the instructions they're using to do it, but also question them about their attitudes, not only to the to the task they're doing, but to life in general and to other people's attitudes to what they're doing, you know, the whole spectrum of it. And if you can model those closely enough, you can get miraculous levels of skill. Um, one example of that that was particularly good that's relate, obviously related to magic was that there were some very interesting NLP modelers that um, worked with um, an Irish guy who was uh, a seventh son and a hands-on healer. And he was like, you know, in, in a he'd come from a traditional a traditional lineage and had that sort of you know had that sort of belief system, and he um, he he did a load of healing on this group of people. I think they did it over a day or two, that weekend or something. Did a load of healing on various people, and the modelers were sitting around, you know, taking notes. And I think they allowed them to film him and things like that. So they were to really break it down in detail: what this guy's actually doing, how he's breathing, how he's thinking, what he's visualizing, the way he's touching someone, etc. And something like I think two thirds of the particular healing after wow. that week. So this is obviously a human faculty, you know, like people. Healing magic is the easiest magic to do because bodies want to heal. So you're always working with the momentum of the universe when you do healing magic. Um, but, yeah, that, that's just one example of how NLP has really helped some people acquire magical skills. I wasn't there at that weekend, and I've never had any NLP experiences as fabulous and, and profound as that. But, uh, yeah, it, it's – I think one of the – it's got some definite parallels with magic. I, I write about this a bit in the book about um, if you want to talk about making a servitor, for instance, in magic, chaos magic, talk about making servitors. They're like a sort of little spirit that you've bolted together from from ideas and elemental forces, and, or rather you've bolted it together from instructions, and then you've put elemental force into it um, in the course of the ritual. So servitors are usually pretty simple things, but they're used multiple times. So the idea is you created something which will test a situation. If it needs to do anything, it will then do that thing. And then it will test again. And if that, if that thing's been done, it will exit. Tote strategy, test, operate, test, exit. So they're, they're really simple little helper spirits. If you think about what you're doing there, you're giving a set of instructions to something as to how to get somewhere. This is incredibly similar to strategies in NLP. If I go out to buy a pair of trousers, let's say, then I've got strategies about how to, you know, some people will go to every shop in town. On, well, let's, let's go as well as on the Internet. Um, other people will go, will have a look on the Internet and then they'll go to a particular shop or maybe they'll go to a market stall and they'll choose their trousers there. And there'll be certain criteria that they're looking at as they're choosing them. And you'll be going off. There's a strategy there. It will be 
think something, feel how that makes you feel, move on to the next thought, do something like go into town, go to a shop. Um, how does that make you feel? And so on and so forth. So there's feeling and doing and thinking. Dotting, you know, like moving between those is what's called a strategy in NLP. How to get from, you know, from one place to another is a strategy. And it's incredibly similar to the whole philosophy and idea of of a servitor, except in the case of a servitor, the strategy is outside of you. you you, It's also embedded in your own nervous system, of course, because you created it. But it's outside of you when it's doing its thing. Similarly, um, modeling is incredibly similar to invocation. You know, if I want to um, become, um, I don't know, more compassionate, I might invoke a certain aspect of the Buddha and meditate on that for a while. And um, if I want to become hardier and tougher, I might invoke Mars and meditate on him for a while. And what you're doing is you're modeling there. You're actually taking um, a sort of an archetype of, of the qualities you want and you're making it personally yours. And there will be a whole bunch of questions you will ask during that, no doubt, as to how you can come close, and inspirations perhaps from the God as to how you can come closer to that. Does that make sense? No, no, it makes sense. And yeah, I've I've definitely benefited in the past from NLP and, of course, self-hypnosis. It's just altering your state of mind, like psychedelics and everything. And in your book, you talk about something that is extremely important and most Westerners still can't grasp or don't do well. And that's just simple breath work, right? Mm. Sometimes the best you can do in life is just breathe. <laughs> oh, breath work is such a powerful thing. I mean, when I was, for, I mean, I, you know, back in the late 70s, I was doing the basic chaos magic training program that you get in Lieber MMM, as we called it then, um, from Pete Carroll's book, Lieber Null. And, you know, part of that is just doing pranayama. It's just sitting, learning how to sit still. And once you're sitting still, learning how to pay attention to the current of your breath. And if you want, alter the current, but maybe just observing it. And Mm -hmm. I've done all that. But then in the early 90s, 1991, I went to a big chaos magic meeting in Austria. And one of the people presenting there was Lionel Snell, a.k.a. Ramsey Dukes, one of the the great magical thinkers of the modern day. Um, he'd, He'd... been getting quite a lot out of rebirthing breathwork. So that's basically what he what he um presented as his workshop and seminar for the um for this residential um retreat. And so we had 30 of us laid down in this medieval room, laid on blankets, um our eyes closed, doing this intense breathing. And just 20 minutes of it, and I went through this roller coaster of emotions, and I thought, oh God. All I've done is breathe. What's going on here? This is incredible. I'm going to learn about this. So when I got back to um, to England, I, I, I found a local breathwork practitioner. Was, his, the brand of breathwork he he used was rebirthing. Of course, the main other the, the other main brand is holotropic. They're, they're, it's the same technology, but done in different contexts slightly. Um, so I went along to this rebirthing practitioner for a few months, and he helped me work through a very difficult time, an emotionally difficult time. And it was such a powerful experience and it was so it was so positive, so you know, limitlessly positive as well. So I thought, okay, I need even more of this. So I had to get a professional qualification here. So I spent a year doing a professional course in Vivation, which was a brand that descended that branched off of rebirthing breathwork, but again the same technology. And um 
I did that, you know, qualified as a practitioner and it was terrific. I just really love giving breathwork sessions. People get so much out of it. I agree. I can't even, I can't even explain the benefits that meditation has helped uh, me with. It's just, I just, like you said about magic, I just feel more in the moment, more embedded in life. I think, um, yeah, I think doing breath work was a good introduction to meditation for me because I tried to meditate but found it kind of boring, basically, which, of course, is part <laughs> of the point. Right, 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 yeah. The monkey mind facing the monkey mind. Oh, God, yeah. Just want to get and do something else, please. <laughs> but with breath work, connected breath work, you're, you know, you're like you're on this roller coaster ride. It's fabulous. There's so much going on that you can't possibly be bored. I, I challenge anybody to feel bored if they're doing fast, full breathing. But... um. You know, so that was a bit of an an introduction to the attitude of meditation, which is, of course, not doing. It's about letting stuff happen. So I had years of introduction to that before I found myself a proper meditation teacher and started doing sitting meditation that didn't involve intense breath work. And, yes, it it is a similar attitude, isn't it? It's not doing. It's it's learning how to not do. Exactly, yes, and not have expectations. Just like you said, let the... Let the magic or let the gods talk to you first. Let your yeah. soul decide what's going on. <laughs> Not your ego for a change. Yeah, yeah. It's changed, doesn't it? To let, let, let leave behind that uh, that shattering self. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as we get to the end, uh, David, I guess a uh, twofold question. Uh, what would you like the audience to get out of your book, Primal Chaos? And uh, where can they find the book and more about you online or anywhere else? Oh, well, I, I've, um, I, th- I think I sent you the link for the the Amazon site for the book. And it only right. went on last night. So it might be another day or so before it's working outside of the UK. Um, but, yeah, you've got uh, Once this interview is live, it will... There'll be plenty of things. Trust in Jeff Bezos. (laughs) My own, um, my own main. uh, I'll find you a link for my own main outward-facing stuff, like my newsletter and um, my website and so forth. But to go back to your original question there about uh, what would I like people to get out of primordial chaos? Really, an understanding of of magic and its place in the world now. Um, looking at the history of chaos magic, which there's a good deal of in that book, and looking at the way that chaos magic isn't just some fad that came and went. It's an actual, it's a way of living that enables you to get the most out of life by living intensely magically, but with still with a critical faculty intact. So you don't just become another, you know, conspiracy fool. But uh, yeah, I, I, I hope people get some idea of what magic's about from it. Certainly, and I agree. Magic is important, uh, and uh, your book certainly answers a lot of questions. And like I said, there's something for everyone that they'll find useful. Again, from breath work to self hypnotism to uh, to runes to uh, gematria, your book takes uh, the audience on a journey. And there's a, and so as I often say, we, sometimes we don't choose books; books choose us, and this is a good book to be chosen from. So, and for the audience, I will have on the show notes whether you're listening on your favorite podcast provider or on YouTube or Rockfin or any of those old platforms. I will have links 
to both David's book and his website. But uh, yeah, we are at the end of this journey. David, uh, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte and discussing your book, Primordial Chaos, Writings and Rituals Then and Now. Thank you, Miguel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Nobody knows but me.